clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 29th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Schwinnard. If you're unable to stay with us for the entirety of today's session, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rockco.com and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, it's my pleasure as always to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thanks as always, Tom. Good afternoon, good morning on the West Coast, and welcome to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, to our colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management, and to other friends of Rockefeller. And as Tom said, uh, welcome to our 29th in the client series that we commenced uh, last March at the beginning of the pandemic. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Yvonne Schwinnard uh, to be with us. Uh, Yvonne has had a spectacular career on many levels. He is an itinerant adventurer, passionate activist, and iconoclastic businessman. In 1973, he founded Patagonia, a mission-driven company known for its environmental and social initiatives. Yvonne is a surfer, mountain climber, gardener, falconer, and is particularly fond of fly fishing. He's written several books. His latest, Some Stories, is a selection of his favorite stories and memories. He also wrote, Let My People Go Surfing. This was his business memoir. It's been published in 16 languages and sold more than 500,000 copies. Yvonne co-founded the Fair Labor Association, 1% for the Planet, the Textile Exchange, the Conservation Alliance, and the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. You get a sense just from that bio of the extraordinary things that Yvonne's done with his career across so many different parts of the world that we live in. Yvonne, good afternoon, good morning there, and welcome, and thanks for being with us. Hi, Greg. Well, I I had no idea I did all those things. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> well, you've uh, you've compressed a lot into a life and continue to, uh, given how uh, how much you still have going on and how active you are. Uh, I wanted to start, Yvonne, with um, our uh, common friend John McMahon, uh, who, for those listening, is a colleague of ours here at Rockefeller Capital Management out on the West Coast, and John and Yvonne have been friends for decades. Uh, so I thought, Yvonne, I'd start by asking you uh, about how you and John met and if you wanted to share any of uh, any uh, anecdotes and stories about some of the things you've done together over the years. As you know, this is my secret sauce on you, Yvonne, because I've, uh, I've heard a lot of those stories from John directly. <laughs> well, I've known John for 30 years or so, I think. Uh, we're both surfers, uh, pretty gung-ho surfers, and... I was in Hawaii uh, at uh, Rel Sun's house. Rel Sun was kind of the queen of Hawaii surfing. Uh, quite a famous person. And, and uh, we used to hang out at her house and surf Makaha. And John just happened to be there. And so that's when I first met him. And since then, you know, we've, we've uh, stayed in touch and, and, uh, become best friends. We, you know, he, he, he worked for, uh, as a stockbroker for, for years for Merrill Lynch. I used to always kid him about that. Whenever the market went down, I'd call him and say, Hey, I'm on the ledge. Should I jump? <laughs> Cause I don't own any stocks. <laughs> I don't believe in them. And so I've always goaded him. And I think probably the reason he's working for you now is probably because of me, I'd say. <laughs> well, uh, he, he told me a story that uh, uh, that I'd love to hear you uh, uh, talk about around um, the two of you. And, and this starts to merge into some of the uh, many things that you're interested in in this world, uh, where the two of you were surfing and you found um, uh, a, a particularly attractive seaweed, uh, which you thought would be good to eat. And you brought some of it back from surfing 
uh, and actually uh, chopped it up and cooked it that night for the two of you. And he said it was uh, it was delicious. So maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the seaweed that you found while surfing and then ended up serving to uh, John McMahon. Well, I'm kind of a hunter-gatherer, and uh, particularly a gatherer, really. And uh, living on the coast, I'm always out getting mussels and uh, and periwinkles and and different conchs, and and so uh, there's a particular seaweed that comes in the spring, and it's uh, in Japanese. I think it's translated to pine pine tree needle seaweed and uh it's very delicious and uh and i eat it every spring and so yeah that's <laughs> i'm always trying to 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 you know challenge my friends to eat a lot of weird things like that well that's a that's a it's a unique story john enjoyed sharing it uh I do want, there's plenty uh, in this active life that you're living that I'd like to talk about. But before we get into that, Patagonia uh, is a company that uh, clearly has been a vehicle for change across corporate America and something uh, that, that you've spent and, and invested a tremendous amount of, uh, of your life and energy in. Can you talk a little bit about the, the history of Patagonia? Uh, what caused you to start it? Um, you know, if we go uh, way back to, uh, you know, it, it, you, you began it in 1973. Well, I, um, I began my business career uh, making mountain climbing equipment. I was a blacksmith. And so that started in 1957. And I was just making stuff for myself because the uh, the equipment in those days was very crude and I thought I could make better stuff. And so that kind of morphed into a business. And, uh, and then at some point we were selling probably 80% of all the climbing hardware sold in America. I mean, the crampons, ice axes, pitons, all of that stuff. And so, uh, but you know, it was labor of love and you know, blacksmiths don't make much money as you can imagine. And so <laughs> I, uh, I I was on a trip to Scotland in the winter, climbing, uh, ice climbing in Mount, on Ben Nevis in Scotland. And coming back, I went through Edinburgh and going by a, a store, I saw a rugby shirt in a window and I thought, wow, that would make a pretty good climbing shirt because it had, it was, you know, sewn very durably, it had rubber buttons uh, and, and had a collar so that you could, your gear sling didn't cut into your neck. So I started wearing that climbing. And at that time, you know, all climber, rock climbers uh, in Yosemite, we bought our uh, all our clothes at Salvation Army, really. And but here I was wearing this colorful rugby shirt and everybody's asking me, well, where does that come from? Where'd you get that? It's pretty cool. So the lights came on and I imported a few and they sold really well. And so one thing led to another and I could see that making clothing was a lot more profitable than making climbing hardware. And so I started making various clothing items for climbers starting in 1967. And then in 73, I started Patagonia as an official clothing company. So, so that's how you got into, into Patagonia. Uh, what, um, Yvonne, you know, that, that description was, um, you know, laid out some of the progression from a business standpoint, but you didn't just start a company, you started Patagonia. Can you talk a little bit about the core principles upon which uh, Patagonia was founded? I mean, you know, right from the start, you had a design philosophy in clothing. You know, you, you wanted customers for life. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, because you did start a company and it didn't make sense that you wanted to be in clothing, but 
you didn't just start any company. You started and and you built this, uh, you know, this uh, uh, company that is so famous for being different. So can you talk a little bit about what caused you to do all that at the beginning? Well, you know, uh, making tools for mountain climbing, you, you pretty much use the principles of industrial design, which is basically you want to make a product, you identify what the use is, and you build according to that. And so we approach making clothing with the same principles of industrial design so that um, function was number one. And we were making clothing for mountain climbers, really, in the beginning. And so we approached making clothing the same way we approached making any of the climbing tools. And that's a lot different than the fashion industry where, you know, you want to make a new product, you buy, the you buy the cloth, you wrap it around a mannequin, you pin it here and there, and then you end up with a product. But we, we start with a functional need. So whether it, it could be a bikini, let's say. Now, people don't think of bikinis as a functional thing, but it is because our customers are surfers. They're body surfers. They don't want the bikini top to fall down. Uh, and so how do you prevent that without making it look dorky? So you got to start with the fabric. You got to develop the fabric that has a clinging uh, aspect to it. And um, so you end up with a, a bikini that not only looks good, but is totally functional. And so that's been the, the, the secret of our design philosophy. And we, we couldn't very well go from making the world's best climbing equipment to making mediocre clothing. It's just, we were very idealistic. So we wanted to make the best clothing in the world. And so what is the best clothing in the world? Is it a Italian shirt that costs, you know, $350 and it's hand woven fabric and, uh, and, uh, the buttons are hand sewn and you know it's an impeccable thing well my designer challenged me on that one time and said well you know that's what we think is the best shirt in the world but i said well what happens if you put it in the washing machine oh you can't do that it'll shrink well that's not very good quality so we had to reinvent what we mean by quality in clothing and that's been our design philosophy. So, and that's served us well, you know, all through the years. People look at our products and they know that they're long lasting and that uh, they're made as well as they possibly can with causing the least amount of harm. And that's been the secret of our success, I think. That was well said. Uh, and that's a, that was a great summary at the end. I think that is. Uh, Yvonne, you've had some incredible moments in the history of Patagonia. Uh, uh, one of them being uh, the um, the one percent for the planet uh, impetus that you really were the were, were the one to get in motion. And then a second one I wanted to ask about was the famous "Don't buy this jacket" advertisement. Could you talk about both of those things for uh, for us? Uh, the one percent for the planet and the "Don't buy this jacket" advertisement. You know, being being a a mountain climber, I've climbed on every continent, including Antarctica, and so I've traveled all over the world in Africa, and and I mean everywhere. And so I I uh, that's been my education. And as you travel around the world, you see that problems of the world, and I could see climate change coming years and years ago, and the unsustainability of humans on earth. And so I've always wanted to do something about it. And so uh, in my business, we've always given away money to environmental causes. 
And at one time we did 10% of our profits before taxes. And then uh, we did that for a few years, but then I noticed some companies saying the same thing that they were going to do a percentage of their profits to environmental causes, but they wouldn't say how much. And it's very easy for a company to basically have no profits. You just give big bonuses to everybody and then you end up with no profits and 10% of no profits is nothing. So I thought, no. And then, you know, I started seeing um, jars of fruit juice that said a percentage of the profits of this product will go to environmental causes. Well, what does that mean? A percentage of the product? It means nothing. It could be two cents. It could be a lot. And so we decided to up the ante and just say 1% of our revenue, 1% of our total revenue, we were going to give away to environmental causes. And so we started an organization called 1% for the Planet that now has, oh, I forgot how many members now, seven or 800,000 or something. Wow. I'm not sure. But, but it's uh, an enormous number. We, we, it's incredible. The, 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 uh, you know, the, the following that you created on that concept. Yeah. 50% of the members are, uh, overseas. How about that one? Cause that's, that's very unusual because, uh, you know, the idea of philanthropy is an American idea because we know the government doesn't work. <laughs> and so we've always known that. And so, so we back it up with philanthropy, but you know, if you go to South America or somewhere, some other country, there is no history of philanthropy. It's all supposed to be done by the government. And, um, in any, any case, uh, you know what, so to have it 50% of one of the 1% uh, members is over, being overseas is pretty amazing. I think a lot of the countries don't give you any tax breaks for philanthropy. You know, we, we can write off uh, our philanthropy off our income taxes. But um, if, if you go to some of the European countries, you can't do that. And yet people are giving. Amazing. It is amazing. So uh, that, that was an incredible thing that you set in motion, really helping to change the, the worldview of so many companies. Um, what about the uh, don't buy this jacket advertisement? Can you tell us uh, the genesis of that idea and the reaction to it? It, it obviously became uh, really a legendary moment and in, in not just advertising, but in, in the way companies uh, interact with clients. Uh, so uh, uh, let's talk about that. Well, it's just a fun deal. <laughs> I, uh, before Black Friday, a few years ago, we just had an employee come to me and say, hey, you know, uh, on Black Friday, let's, let's give away all our revenue. So um, I thought, well, let, let me see now. The year before we did like two and a half million dollars in our own stores in the US uh, on Black Friday. And I thought, well, why not? That's not, that's not much. So that was like three days before Black Friday. And we just made an instant decision. And so they called me on Black Friday, like three in the afternoon and say, hey, <laughs> We've sold six million so far. I said, really? <laughs> and then by six, it was like 10 or 12 million. I don't remember. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> this, this uh, some pretty big numbers here. So we had to give all of that away. Uh, but you know what happened? Uh, uh, 60% of our sales were to new customers. Now it costs a lot of money to get a new customer. I mean, you could do a 30 second ad on the Super Bowl 
and it costs you $5 million and it's not going to do you a damn bit of good. But having all of these new customers, and then I thought, well, business is going to collapse between now and Christmas because everybody's bought everything. Business kept continuing straight up all through Christmas and after Christmas and has been going ever since. So marketing wise is one of the best things I could have done, but we didn't do it for marketing. We just did it to, uh, to uh, just, you know, give more money away to environmental causes. And, and uh, Yvonne, how did the uh, don't buy this jacket fit in? Did you run that before the Black Friday or? That was, that was, the, that was one, that was another Black Friday one. The okay. don't buy this jacket. We put an ad in the New York Times, full page ad that said, um, don't buy this jacket. And there was a photograph of a jacket. And then it explained, you know, Think about why you want to buy this jacket. Is it because you're bored? Do you really need this jacket? Think about it. And, uh, but if, if you do buy it, um, if you do decide to buy it from us, we will promise that we'll repair it forever. If uh, if you're bored with it, or you get you know too fat to wear it, whatever, we'll find another uh, customer for you to sell that jacket to. And at the end of the life of that jacket, we will take it back and recycle it into more product. So we will take possession of that jacket really from birth till death. And uh, so, of course, what happened? We sold more of those jackets than you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't do it to sell jackets. We did it to get people to think about this problem with consumerism, this mindless consuming and discarding endlessly that is fueling well, it fuels the economy, but it also is our demise, really. And uh, so anyway, we we love to do marketing like that, that shocks people, but it gets them to think. And it changed the way we thought about our clothes as well. Uh, let's keep going on that. And in, in what way did it change the way you think you thought about the clothes? Well, now we're looking at renting clothes. I mean, um, you know, if you buy a five or $600 ski jacket and you ski for 10 days a year, it sits in a closet the whole rest of the time. That's not very useful. And it's a waste of energy. It's a waste of, of the product. And, you know, by the time you use it again, it's out of fashion probably. And so why not rent a ski jacket for those 10 days? I mean, you know, there's, there's other companies that are doing that, but also now we have a, uh, a worn wear program where we sell used Patagonia products. And if, um, so th the last thing we want is to have our product end up in a landfill is what we're trying to do. Uh, it's a, uh, look, you and I talked about this. It's, um, it's a terrific philosophy, and and uh, uh, it's great to have a, a somebody out there leading leading the charge on these themes. Um, you know, Yvonne, there's more on I'd like to, to talk about on Patagonia, but I want to circle back because people are interested in a lot of aspects of your life, and and uh, you did begin, and this really kicked off your business career as well. You you were and are a legendary and pioneering rock climber. And that passion, as you said, did lead to your first company, uh, Schwinnard Equipment. What were the aspects of rock climbing that you enjoyed the most? And did you have a memorable or most memorable climb? Well, like I said, I, I'm not just a rock climber, I'm an alpine climber. So I kind of, uh, I've been in all aspects of climbing. I, I'm, uh, I'm an outdoor athlete, but I, 
I'm not a fanatic. <laughs> I I do all kinds of different sports, but I take it up to like 75%, then I get bored and go off in a whole other direction. With climbing, I specialized in uh, climbing cracks for three years. I, I specialized in big wall climbing in Yosemite. I specialized in uh, Himalayan climbing. I I, uh, I did uh, ice climbing for quite a while. I wrote the uh, the first book ever written about ice climbing technique, where I went all around the world studying all the different ways of climbing ice. And in those days, it was a lot like skiing, you know. In the 60s, there was a French technique. There was uh, Austrian reverse shoulder, you know, the kind of the Stein Erickson technique. Uh, and there were different techniques of skiing. And now everybody skis the same pretty much. And that's what I did with ice climbing. I went around, studied all the different methods of climbing ice and then put them all together in one tome and uh, one unified method of climbing. And so I love climbing uh, because it's uh, it has no useful purpose to, for society, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> I love that. And uh, and also it's a very um, well, climbing a rock is a very pleasurable thing. It uses your whole body, you know, as opposed to say tennis. I mean, I play tennis and I mean, my right wrist is about twice the size of my left wrist. It's so one-sided, but climbing is you use your whole body and it's, uh, and you know, moving over rock is we're we're animals, and it's very pleasurable feeling to do that. And so, and it's idealistic. Uh, it, it's it's a little like uh, Zen Buddhism in that you don't think about the end result; you just work on the process. And climbing, let's say you. you you do a climb on El Capitan in Yosemite and you spend 10 days up there hanging and you get to the top, you know what? There's nothing there. It's flat. And uh, it's all on how you get there is what's important. And I've used that in business. You know, if you ask me how much money I made last year, I have no idea. I've totally forgotten. You ask me how much money we're going to make this year. I don't know. I just know that the process is going well and we're going to be profitable instead of focusing on the process, focusing on the profit. So many businessmen focus on the profit and they would never put in, say, a child care center because the financial people are going to say, oh, no, that's a drain of money. You can't justify that. They don't see the big picture where, you know, I have I have probably 70% of our employees are women and I can't afford to lose them. If they get pregnant, I, I just can't afford to lose them. It, it, it's, it's been proven that it, for every employee you lose, it costs you $50,000 to replace them. You know, that's in training and lost productivity, headhunter fees and all that stuff. So you don't want to lose your people. And so that's looking at business in a different way than the bottom line. And I've learned that from climbing. I learned that from doing all of these other sports. That's tremendous. I'm going to ask a question that came in from one of uh, uh, one of uh, our listeners. That's uh, uh, an extension of this. Uh, Matt Mundy says or asks, between your time climbing and surfing, what is the most dangerous situation you, you found yourself in and did that help motivate you in your career and in your life? Um, <laughs> the worst thing that's happened to me, I, w I was in an avalanche in, uh, in China and in Tibet, along with uh, three other, two other people. And uh, one friend was killed and, and then one friend had a broken back. And, and, 
I had broken ribs and uh, it's a long story, but we, we went 1500 feet and the avalanche eventually stopped 30 feet from a 300 foot cliff. And um, that pretty much put an end to my Himalayan climbing. I, I realized uh, it was time to time to be more responsible and but also what that taught me is that I, I was knocked out, had a concussion and the thing happened over a long period the avalanche was a long period of time it, and I knew I was gonna die and I kind of accepted it. And I afterwards I was uh, I was very depressed after that act. Nor I've had a lot of close calls in different sports. And afterwards you go around smelling the flowers and you feel great to be alive. But after that one, I was depressed because I had gone over the other side and accepted death and then came back and I've read a lot of stories of people doing that and they are depressed when they come back but it also makes you feel like like uh, death is a natural thing it's it's going to happen to all of us it's uh am I gonna if I get terminal cancer am I going to fight it to the nth degree or am I just going to accept it I don't know but it's a different way of looking at death. You said that uh, you had a lot of time to think about it. So you were carried 1,500 feet by the avalanche. Isn't that happening at a speed where it's quite quick? Or or, or um, maybe you were buried for un, under the snow for a while. So what, what was was it that your thoughts were rushing quickly? Or was it actually a fair amount of time when you were, were, were carried? No, it was happening very quickly. but. It also stopped about halfway down and uh, I was on the surface and I was, you know, I had ropes wrapped around me, I had crampons on and I'm trying to get out of this thing and and, uh, and then it started again. And so it, it did last for a while and when it started again, I knew we were dead. Wow. Uh well, let's uh, let's shift uh, to uh, another passion of yours that's uh, certainly safer, uh, and and this is one that um, uh, others uh, have have a real interest in, including uh, some from uh, our our uh, our friends over, uh, among the Rockefellers, David and Susan Rockefeller, and that's regenerative regenerative farming, um, and actually I think Patagonia Provisions. Uh, is a, is an expanding food arm at the company and, and and incorporates some of these principles. But can you can you talk to our listeners about regenerative farming and uh, uh, your efforts there? What what that is and and why you've been attracted to that? Three three years ago, we changed our mission statement um, because I got really really more and more concerned about global warming, and so we. We changed our mission statement to simply say we're in business to save our home planet. And so what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my business? What does that mean for every employee in my business? How can we live up to that mission statement? So we had to identify what we could do as a company. And uh, Um, <laughs> so we had to do a lot of introspection and one one of the because we use a lot of raw materials and we use a lot of raw materials that come from farming like cotton and hemp and things like that I got interested in uh, in farming of cotton in that we had been doing organically grown cotton for many, many years. That's the only cotton we use is organically grown. But you know what? Organically grown cotton doesn't do the world any good. 
it just uses up farmland that could be used for growing food, which, and also it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, organically grown cotton doesn't use the toxic chemicals, but in between crops, the fields are fallow and all the carbon that you've captured with that uh, cotton plant is now back up into the air again. So I got interested in regenerative farming, which doesn't use any plowing. There's no tilling of the soil because every time you till in between crops, you release all the carbon that you've captured. So regenerative is a way of farming that builds topsoil and captures carbon. And you know, it takes a thousand years to grow an inch of topsoil and we're running out of topsoil so quickly. And yet with regenerative farming, which uses compost between each crop, which doesn't leave the, the fields fallow, there's always something growing on it. It can build topsoil. It can build an inch of topsoil in you know, just a, a decade. And so I thought, well, let's put our, that's one of the focuses that we can do with our mission statement is to focus on regenerative cotton. And so now we're growing some cotton in India with about 650 farmers. And these are, you know, little farmers of uh, an acre and a half, let's say. They're growing cotton for us regeneratively. So they're using cover crops of chickpeas and turmeric. You know, there's a good market for turmeric, of course, these days. So they're getting three crops a year at least, and they're making more money than they did with this so-called green revolution, which, you know, we, we talked, we talked the uh, Indian farmers years ago to go to industrially grown cotton and they had crop failures using all the chemicals and everything and they had 300,000 farmers commit suicide you know when you're a small farmer like that and you have a crop failure you're gone and so now these farmers are happy as can be with us they're making money they're growing uh regeneratively and organically both and it's on a small scale and so can you ramp this up to a big scale no absolutely not you cannot do regenerative organic farming on a large scale you can't have a thousand acres of broccoli without getting infestations of aphids and everything else but it can be done on a very small scale by people around the world and that's the good news because there's all these people that needed a job worldwide and I can't think of them all going to school and learning computer science the only way I can see these people being employed whether it's Iraq or whether it's Africa is in small-scale regenerative organic farming and if we switch to that I think we can capture incredible amount of carbon that now is being wasted through modern agriculture. So that's why I'm so excited about it. That's fantastic. That was a great description uh, of it uh, uh, for uh, for all those listening. I'm going to ask another question, uh, Yvonne, that uh, came in from one of our colleagues, Emiliano Roman who asks the following, he says, some say business is the most effective vehicle to create sustainable social and environmental change. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs and finance professionals who, like you, are focused on driving sustainable change through mission-driven private enterprises? I think, you know, we can wait around for the government to solve all our problems, but it's not gonna happen. I believe in market forces can also help. Uh, I, I, uh, I've, I've been fighting against uh, offshore salmon farms around the world that are polluting the oceans and, uh, and giving you a product that is full of antibiotics and toxic 
chemicals and I mean, there it's an environmental disaster. These offshore salmon farms. So what's the solution to legislate them out? It'll never happen. They're so tied in with governments that it won't happen. But why not start a salmon farm on the land that recycles 100% of the water, doesn't use any any uh, sardines and anchovies for the feed, and uh, produces a product that is clean and non-polluting and is as sustainable as you can possibly get. So, and then compete with those farms that are offshore in these net pens. So that's that's an example of market force that can solve a problem. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's a, a good response to that question in terms of um, uh, prodding entrepreneurs to look at things differently. Um, Yvonne, uh, you've been very focused at Patagonia and your business on the benefits, and you just talked about, uh, again, you were a pioneer in, in childcare for your employees, so you believed in the community aspects of work, uh, and in a, uh, as a result of the pandemic, there's more of a notion of working remotely, and you know we've been able to successfully do that in such large numbers across the United States and around the world. How do you see the balance as the pandemic hopefully comes to a close here between wanting people to be in a collaborative environment? And this is something that we were dealing with at Rockefeller and, and you know, leaders of many companies are, are trying to strike this right balance. We need to be in an office and we meet clients in our offices and we have a collaborative process and we come up with ideas because we're together. At the same time, you want uh, the people working for the company to to, to be able to uh, enjoy the benefits of the of the technology and 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 the things that the technology has brought to modern society. How do you see that balance uh, in in the world that that's uh, that's emerging now? I wish I could answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm wrestling. We're wrestling with that ourselves. I mean. Uh, I, I do know that uh, not being together really kills the whole fun aspect of being in business, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's so important that we all gather together. I mean, we have our own cafeterias and childcare centers, and it all is a ecosystem, and it works together. And when everybody's spread out all over the country and stuff it's just it really suffers but i also know that we're never going to go back to air travel like we used to do before it's going to be zoom meetings for sure and there are a few you know i have i have 2500 employees worldwide and some of them shouldn't work from home it makes a lot of sense. But I would say that 80 or 90% of our employees should be at the workplace. Otherwise, we really, really suffer. And especially, especially in a creative department like the design department, you can't do it by Zoom. You have to be together. And uh, so we're trying to figure out now exactly what it means, but I think the biggest change is going to be flying around the world for meetings and stuff like that, which is totally uh, unnecessary anymore. Yeah, I'm going to ask uh, another another question uh, that goes to the uh, some of the precedential things you've done at Patagonia, Yvonne. This comes from uh, Amanda Edelman, and she says, uh, Patagonia has led the charge around business impact on many fronts, but particularly around B Corps. Can Yvonne talk about what being a B Corp means to him and Patagonia, Patagonia's involvement in advocating for uh, greater B Corp adoption and how he thinks the B Corp movement is changing the conversation? Well, that's a big one. Um, well, B Corp, I think is the first, uh, first way that's come up to 
get companies thinking about the fact that they have a responsibility to society and not just to make a profit. And uh, we were the first B Corp in California. So we were, you know, part of the start of that. And now it's all over the world. And it's, uh, th there is a revolution going on, I, I must say. I I'm not all doom and gloom. There is a revolution around the idea that capitalism has to change. <clears throat> it's not just, uh, you know, maximizing profits for the owners and the shareholders and stuff, but that there's more to capitalism than that. And I think these companies that join up, uh, that become a B Corp member, they start out doing it probably because it's uh, the right thing to do, but they don't really know how deep they have to go to, to change. But as they get into it, they get deeper and deeper, and there's more and more change within the company. And so it's a good start. It's really a good start. There's so much greenwashing going on with corporations right now, because everybody wants to be on the green wagon, you know? And but it's so much greenwashing that uh, I don't know. I, I can't really look at very many companies that I respect, to tell you the truth. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. That's a perfect follow-on for the two of us uh, because, <laughs> you know, Patagonia set the, the, the tone, you know, uh, so early in the process. I mean, I, I started working in the late 80s and, and and really the the zeitgeist of the time away from examples like Patagonia was the corporation was there for the uh, to maximize profit profits for the shareholders and that was basically it. I mean there are schools of thought around that, and there's obviously a very different perspective on a broader basis now. Um, do you have I mean, when you look out, big or small, are there companies that have followed the Patagonia model that you admire and you 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 appreciate the ethos of that company and the way they're doing it, or uh, do you not have any examples for us? There's, uh, well, if you look at the members of 1% for the planet, most of those are trying to do the same thing that, that we're doing, which is, which is not wait till the end of the year and then you've got this extra money and then you give it away to do some good, but you do it every single day as a part of business. You know, I, I don't look at our 1% that we give away as as philanthropy. I look at it as the cost of doing business. We're polluters. You know, we're using up non-renewable resources. And uh, I, I've always had a, a sense of responsibility to do something about that. I mean, my parents, uh, you know, told me to clean my room. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a long time ago that you make a mess, you clean it up. And so I've always had that responsibility. And so the idea of doing good in the course of doing business rather than waiting till, uh, till you've made all this profit in whatever way you can, and then you give it away is, is wrong. And I think more and more companies are starting to understand that. I mean, you, you could have you could have a company that is one of the best companies in the world for uh, for employee benefits, and they make the best quality product, and so and so, and they're making landmines. How about that one? <laughs> so. You know, landmines have been outlawed by every country in the world except the United States. And it's, that's wrong. It's just plain wrong. So that would never be a B Corp. Yeah. I've got, uh, uh, this is fascinating. I've got uh, other uh, good questions that have come in, and so I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask you those from Mariano Lozano. Being a rugby player born and raised in Argentina, 
I'm happy to to know about the early story of the rugby T-shirt. I'm not sure what he's referring to, but I'm sure you do. The question for Yvonne, what does El Chalten mean for you? What good memories does that trigger in your soul? And uh, Mariano concludes by thanking you for your constant leadership. Well, El Chalten is a, uh, is a mountain. Uh, it was called Mount Fitzroy down in, uh, in Patagonia in 1968. That's one of the best trips I ever had. Uh, I took off with Doug Tompkins, uh, you know, who used to own a spree and has done all this great work in South America, uh, creating park lands and stuff. But in 1968, four of us took off from Ventura, California and drove to the tip of South America. And uh, at that time, it, the Pan American Highway was all dirt from Mexico City South. So we drove down surfing all through Latin America, all the way to Lima, Peru. Then we got rid of our surfboards and went down and skied volcanoes down in southern Chile. We crossed over to Argentina and we did a new route on this Mount Fitzroy, which is an iconic mountain. And, uh, and that was a great experience. And that's where I got the name Patagonia for the company. And uh, and I I uh, and I've been involved with, along with the uh, Tompkins Conservation and in, in helping create uh, wild areas and reserves and national parks in South America. So it's it's uh, it's not just a name. It's uh, it's something. You know, in, in those days, if you ask somebody about Patagonia, where's Patagonia? They'd say, Patagonia, uh, I kind of heard of it, but I, I don't know where it is. It's kind of like, how many people know where Timbuktu is? You know, do they know that it's in Niger? Or, no, hardly anybody. They, they've heard of it, but it's a mysterious name. And I think it's, it was the same thing with Patagonia. We put Patagonia on the map, I must say. <laughs> I think you did. Before that, I mean, it was, yeah. yeah. No, no, no question. Uh, I have another uh, question uh, from Jimmy Hunter. Tom Brokaw told a funny story about you on the David Letterman show one night. He said you were teaching him how to climb and refused to tie yourself to him because if he fell, you didn't want to fall too. Is that true? <laughs> 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 well, that's it's yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's a uh, we we had to we had to cross underneath a an ice fall that could fall at any minute, and you had to really run across it really fast, and uh, and we didn't want to rope up because if you know it would all go down, so. It was every man for himself. I said, Tom, it's just like wait, getting a taxi in New York City in, in, a, in a rainstorm. It's every man for himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Um, Tim O'Hara has a question uh, that came in from a client of ours. What does Yvonne think of the Ben and Jerry business model where they instituted a ratio between the highest paid and the lowest paid employees so no one made, quote, an excessive amount? Well, you know, I would say that that is a company I respect. Um, they, ben, ben and Jerry's was one of the really early responsible companies. And uh, I know those guys and I really respect them. And, and even though they're owned by Denon now and they have kept their values and I think they just bailed out of the occupied uh, areas in in uh, Israel there because they won't sell them ice cream <laughs> and the Israelis are all upset because they're they're uh, protesting the occupation of these uh, Palestinian home sites. The uh, I believe the uh, the founders of that company uh, were graduates of my university, Colgate. Um, yeah, Yvonne, I have to ask you, uh, otherwise um, uh, 
uh, I won't be able to face John McMahon after this. I, I, I want to know, have you uh, actually turned him into a capable fly fisherman? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't rehearse uh, that answer, John. I have taken hooks out of his hide, though. <laughs> Yeah, he did. He did tell me that story. Um, uh, the uh, on, on a more serious vein, I'm wondering, given the the this dialogue and the things that you've done over the course of your life and continue to, what counsel do you provide young people who are starting out in life on on both a professional and 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 um, uh, and a personal and really a worldview basis? What do you tell young people? I tell them to break the rules. I, I've given a bunch of talks that I've gotten a bunch of, you know, honorary degrees and stuff. And I, I try to tell the students, look, break the rules. Because if you try to play the same game as somebody else, you're going to lose. So invent your own games. You can always be a winner. The, uh, and that's been, the secret of our success, I think, is it's not only it's not only fun to break the rules, but it really works. Because if you come up with an idea for a, a business and it's similar to somebody else's business, then you got to compete on marketing, you got to compete on quality, you got to compete on price, you got to. I mean, for me. Uh, <laughs> For me, hell, hell is going to be. I'm going to. I'm going to be in the. The devil is going to make me head of a marketing company, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, uh, oh, a, a few years ago, I I got a, an award from uh, American Advertising Institute, and uh, and I I admitted. I said, look, we don't do any advertising. It's one tenth of one percent of our sales that we spend on advertising. Advertising's dead. This this is before social media. And I said, just check out social media. This is the future, and it's not advertising. And I said, marketing at our company is we tell people who we are. That's it. But that means we have to live up to say who we are. We're, we don't just invent the Marlboro Man. We don't hire a bunch of athletes to to go out and make believe like, you know, they they use our product and everything. That doesn't work. The the young customer nowadays is really smart. They can see into in in anybody that's not authentic, any company that's not authentic, they can see right through it. It's a different customer these days. These young kids are really smart, but it also means we have to live up to say, you know, who we are. And that's, and we, we make news by breaking the rules, like coming out with, don't buy this jacket ad or, or giving all our money away on Black Friday. Radical things that a public company could never do. Yvonne, uh, this has been uh, tremendous, uh, and and uh, I feel like uh, uh, we've been able to elicit. We could go on for hours, given what you've done and are doing with your life. But we've been able to elicit the many different uh, facets of the existence that uh, that you uh, have and continue to carve. So thank you very much for being with us. I did tell you that I always close uh, uh, after thanking uh, our clients and all of our listeners for being here. Uh, with quotations that uh, are hopefully uh, thought-provoking and reflective of the uh, nature of the dialogue that we've had today. So uh, really, the, hopefully, the nature of, uh, uh, of uh, Yvonne Schmenard. So I've got two for you, uh, for you and for our listeners uh, before we sign off. Uh, one is uh, Kerouac, Jack Kerouac on the road, who said, uh, quote, uh, there was nowhere to go but everywhere. So just keep rolling under the stars. And then the second quote uh, to close the session out on is from Ayn Rand, 
and she said the following. The question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. I think both of those are appropriate for, uh, for our uh, guest today. So Yvonne, many thanks again for being with us. Thank you to all of our listeners, clients, friends of Rockefeller uh, for uh, an uh, incredibly interesting uh, uh, session. It was good to have you here. Everybody stay well as we work our way through the summer of uh, 2021. I look forward to seeing it, as many of you as possible uh, live uh, in New York or around uh, the other Rockefeller offices across the country. So thanks again, Yvonne, and all the best.